Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 2. Birth of the Glider Pilot Regiment. It was exceedingly cold and snow lay everywhere. My train pulled into Salisbury Station at 8.35 and as I stepped onto the freezing platform I was full of anticipation and excitement. Jumping into a jeep that had been sent to collect me I turned up the collar of my greatcoat and sat back waiting for the cold drive ahead. And indeed it was cold. The wind blew through the jeep, making my eyes run, and the set expression of the driver, who was obviously frozen too, warmed me that conversation was not to be encouraged. We drove out onto Salisbury Plain, along the Amesbury Road, where in the distance I saw Old Sarum, and reflected on my last visit there, and how I had failed to become an air liaison officer. I fell to wondering what this next adventure might hold. Driving on through the lanes, we came to the edge of a snow-covered airfield, Royal Air Force Netherhaven, then turned down a lane to enter the drive of a small Georgian house. This was the headquarters of the newly formed Airborne Division and the seat of command of Major General Boy Browning. I jumped down from the jeep and entered the house. It was charming, old-fashioned and had panelled walls. It had been denuded of furniture, which had been replaced by the fittings customary in all houses taken under military command. On the floor was the usual coconut matting and odd chairs and tables were everywhere. Yet there was a distinct and exciting atmosphere. Something new. I reported to the GSO-1, Colonel Walsh, who motioned me to a chair. Please sit down, the General will see you in a moment. I looked at the door and wondered what sort of a man sat in that room and how he would receive me, and if he would accept me as one of his officers. After a pause, the bell on the Colonel's desk rang, and he got up and disappeared. There was the usual silence, punctuated by the beating of my heart, and I wondered if the staff officer was describing me in my appearance. Indeed, I had taken a great deal of trouble in the early morning to make myself look smart. Soon the door opened and he came out, and without so much as a glance in my direction, sat down again and went on with his work. My nervousness increased, and I began to feel awkward and ill at ease. Again the bell rang, and again he went to the door. My eyes followed him, and he disappeared inside the office. A few minutes later, he came out and said curtly, Major Chatterton, General Browning will see you now. His steel blue eyes catching mine. Will you step this way? I marched into the room and moved up the desk. Saluting in my best barrack square fashion, I stood stiffly to attention, my blood pounding in my ears. Looking down at the man in front of me, I saw a thin face with darkish hair brushed backwards, a well-trimmed moustache lined the top lip. The lips were firm, the body slight but athletic. I noticed that his uniform was beautifully cut and that his regimentals were those of the Grenadier Guards. The Sam Brown sparkled and shone and a thin gold chain hung from the upper pocket. A row of medals lined the breast and I espied the DSO leading. The desk was spotless and neat and two delicate and well-manicured hands lay on the pad in front of him. How do you do? Take a chair and for God's sake relax. I'm not going to eat you, I heard him say. Thank you, sir, I replied, and dropped the chair beside where I stood. Well, what do you want to join the Airborne Division for? He asked, looking keenly at me. Sir, in the first place, I've been a pilot, I replied, and as a result, it attracts me enormously. I see you have RAF wings. When were you with them? He asked. 
I joined in 1930, sir. Oh, quite a long time ago, he said, looking a little surprised. Did you have much experience? I told him of my life as an RAF pilot and all that lay behind me, and he listened intently. I told him that I felt that I was equipped for this unknown job and that this was because I had had the good fortune to wear both uniforms, that of the RAF and of the Army, which I felt gave me a dual capacity. He listened and then said, I've already selected a second in command and he has gone up to Derby to learn to fly with the commanding officer Colonel Rock. My heart sank, for by now I felt I could not bear life unless I was to be able to become an officer in the glider pilot regiment. However, I do think you have some very good reasons for me to consider you in some capacity. I will give it my consideration. Come and have a drink in the mess. Thus I met Boy Browning for the first time and fell under his spell as everyone did. Just how closely we should be linked in building up the airborne forces, I could not then know. As I was sitting fumbling with my hat and gloves in front of the general commanding the 1st Airborne Division, the fate of the German effort in this form of warfare was, in fact, being settled. And it is incredible to think now that we, the British, were only about to begin building up an airborne army, while the Germans had reached the point where, unknown to us, they were abandoning theirs because of the heavy casualties in Crete and the resultant drain on their crack troops. A few weeks after the interview with General Browning, I received a telegram informing me that I had been selected second in command to Lieutenant Colonel Rock, 1st Battalion, the Glider Pilot Regiment, and that I was to report to Salisbury Plain where I would take over the new depot, Tillshead, which was to be the training depot of the regiment. I arrived there on a bitterly cold afternoon with Alec Gall, my batman. The camp was situated near Devizes on an old artillery range and was no more than a cluster of wooden huts of early vintage. Standing in the empty hut, which was to be my orderly room, I felt cold and nervous. It was most uninviting, and I could not imagine how this empty wilderness could ever act as an inspiration to one of the most unusual regiments that the army had ever conceived. The passages rang with the sound of my footsteps, and I felt that the ghosts of many military figures were lurking in the shadows, resentful of my presence. The wind howled outside, and the naked electric light bulbs cast a hard glare on the dismal scene. Yet I experienced a strange feeling of hope. Here, perhaps, was the chance of a lifetime, despite all the external evidence to the contrary. All round Netheravon, the various units of the new airborne division were gradually collecting. Parachute brigades, one heavy glider brigade and the first air landing brigade. It was this last named brigade and supporting arms which we hoped to carry in the gliders that we were to pilot. The main airfield was that of RAF Netheravon, which embodied the headquarters of No. 38 Wing Royal Air Force and was a famous landmark in RAF history. I was informed that the first force of 300 glider pilots would arrive in three weeks and that in the meantime I would receive a skeleton staff to assist me. It was then that I sat down to think out what I was going to do with these men and what approach would be best to give them inspiration. I thought deep and long visualising by calling on my past experience the role each man would have to play in an invasion and the problems he would have to meet, not only to survive but also to become an effective unit in a fighting force. First, I assumed that flying a glider on tow must impose a severe strain on the pilot, a strain that would in no way be alleviated by the knowledge that on landing in the battlefield there would be no prospect of an immediate return. Now, I knew that on landing, after flying a power aircraft for a long time, there is an overwhelming desire to relax completely and to sleep. Such facilities are available for pilots landing at an air station, but I asked myself, what would happen to the pilot who landed in the middle of a battle? 
In addition to being a first-class pilot, he would need to be possessed of a deep sense of responsibility, since the lives of the fully armed troops transported in his glider would be dependent on his skill, determination and courage. On top of this, on making a landing on the target, in the twinkling of an eye, he would have to transport himself from a highly trained pilot to an equally highly trained and courageous soldier. Were we, was I, expecting the impossible? I thought not, but I had no illusions as to the complexity of the task ahead. I came to the conclusion that I must fall back on experiences of the past, what I had learned in my days at Pangbourne as a naval cadet, the basic training necessary to make a pilot in the early stages of flying, my more recent experiences as a company commander in the Queen's, which convinced me that I would be wise to tackle the whole scheme on the lines of the depot at Guildford, where I'd been an instructor. As soon as I had arranged for the usual domestic details of the camp to start, I asked for an interview with General Browning to explain my views. The interview being granted, I pointed out that since, in the glider pilot, we would be trying to create a very special dual character, a highly trained soldier, as well as a skillful, resourceful pilot, such men could only evolve from a regiment possessed with a strong sense of esprit de corps. And, I added, to achieve this goal, sir, I feel that I must have the very best NCOs as instructors, if possible from the Brigade of Guards, for I feel that this should be the basis of our inspiration. The General looked at me and said without hesitation, You will most certainly need the very best that can be got, and I will deal with it at once. And so, Company Sergeant Major Briardy of the Irish Guards and Company Sergeant Major Cowley of the Coldstream Guards arrived at my camp in Tillshead. As I write now, I can still visualise the scene and feel the excitement of it. I can hear the stamp of these two young men as they marched into my cold office. Briardly, tall, thin and erect, Cowley, huge, dark and handsome. Good morning, I said to them in greeting. Good morning, sir, they answered in unison, after the magnificence of their salute. The guards had arrived, irrevocably. That morning, I told them my plan to create the total soldier, the complete man, in the military sense and in the sense of a pilot. You see, I have had the good fortune to be both pilot and infantry soldier, and I am quite certain that to fulfil this job, we must create in the men a basic discipline, which they can fall back on once they have left the aircraft. I am sure that this originates on the parade ground and in the barrack hut. Therefore, once the man has mastered the knack of being smart in himself, proud of his regiment in bearing and turnout, the rest will follow. I am asking you to instil into them all what you have learnt in your own regiments, the Irish and Coldstream Guards. It will not be easy for you or for me, and neither of us will be popular, for the volunteers will have come down from all and every unit, with varying points of view as to the application of discipline. They will also have volunteered to fly, and will regard square bashing as thoroughly ridiculous. But, I think, otherwise. As soon as the first batch of men arrive, I continued, I want you to make it clear that only the highest standard of bearing and discipline will be tolerated in this camp. It is an appalling place where morale can easily slip. Let us make it into something worthwhile, and really try to inspire the men. The warrant officers looked at me seriously, and I knew that my words had not fallen on deaf ears. The following morning, the first batch of officers and men arrived. They were, indeed, a very mixed lot from every regiment of the British Army with experience of every kind of discipline. How the army could have tolerated such varied forms of dress, I don't know, and many were not even clean, physically or otherwise, let alone their uniforms. The phony war in Dunkirk had certainly taken their toll, for one could see the signs of deterioration which always follow in the track of boredom and lack of inspiration. It was an amazing experience, for confronting me was a potted history of the British Army, 
The Cheshire Regiment, the Irish Guards, the Queens, the East Surreys, the Royal Artillery, the Royal Engineers, the Hampshires and the Sussex Regiments. In fact, nearly every unit of the army ever conceived. With them came the good, the bad and the indifferent. Good-tempered, bolshy, rude, casual and kind and all adventurous, even if a great many were only looking for a change. Nevertheless, they were just the material for this remarkable experiment, the making of the total soldier. As soon as Bridley and Cowley had sorted them out, I told them to gather the men in the naffy. In the meantime, I had a large map of the world prepared, and on it I marked the various parts of the world we had lost up to that time, but it also showed how we had developed the British Empire. I got up on the stage and addressed them as follows. You have all come here as volunteers. Not quite clear what you have volunteered for, but at least it has the tang of adventure in it. You are also the first to form the Glider Pilot Regiment, a regiment without history or tradition, and at a time when we have experienced a series of bad defeats all over the world. And at this point I pointed to the map. This being the situation, in the moment of defeat, we will forge this regiment as a weapon of attack. But in order to do so, we will have to find inspiration. Now, we consider ourselves to be unique, in that not only will we be trained into pilots, but also we all have to fight on the ground. Therefore, we must be total in all and everything. We shall fly, master all infantry weapons, drive tanks, jeeps and trucks. We shall learn to command and obey, use wireless sets to receive and send. In fact, there is nothing we will not train ourselves to do. But in order to do this, we must instill in ourselves the highest form of discipline and esprit de corps. We will therefore look to the example of our ancestors. I make no apology for asking you to remember men like Raleigh and Drake. I think it appropriate at this grim moment to remind you of the achievements of the Cromwellian Ironsides, who in a short time came to be regarded as the finest soldiers in Europe, of the army of the peninsula's victory over Napoleon, and the remarkable quality of the contemptible little army whose 100,000 men held up a million. This is the tradition which you inherit and which is represented in the various cap badges that you wear. In the matter of discipline, we will take the lead from Sergeant Majors Bridley and Cowley of the Brigade of Guards and this shall be our pattern of behaviour. Remember that it is by the self-discipline which we learn now that we shall stand or fall in the future. Of this, I am sure. Let me repeat that I make no apology for talking to you like this. May I add that I shall be quite ruthless. Only the best will be tolerated in loyalty and discipline, apart from anything else. If you do not like it, then go back whence you came. It would be far better. I do not apologise, even now, for after all that has happened, I know that I was right, notwithstanding much criticism. Bridling and Cowley set the highest standards. Many fell by the wayside and could not, or would not, take it. Many grumbled. I was even railed at by politicians and called a fascist, and an investigation was started. I was informed that one man who had failed to make the grade had complained to his MP, who in turn asked a question in the House of Commons. One day I was told that an officer from the War Office was coming down to investigate. At that time I had over 600 men in the camp, so I paraded the lot. When he arrived I took him on the parade, but I made him inspect the parade from the rear to the front, for in the rear were the recent arrivals. At the end he asked me, how long have these men in the front rank been here? I said, four to six weeks. He looked at the parade and said, I've never seen anything like it. Do you mean to say that such a change can come over men in such a short time? Yes, I answered, if they're made of the right stuff. The man who made the complaint obviously was not, but then no man can be accepted here who is average. He must have the highest aspirations and ideals, for we have an immensely difficult task to achieve. Because of this, the men change, as you have seen. I heard no more 
and we continued our job in peace. During the first stages, Lieutenant Colonel John Rock was learning to fly at the elementary flying school at Derby, and I decided to fly up there and have a word with him. Now, I had not flown for quite a long time, and before flying up to Derby, I had to have an RAF medical board, so this was arranged for me at RAF Cardington. I was somewhat apprehensive, for this was where I had previously been before medical boards, when I was in the RAF, and an RAF pilot, and wondered if I was going to be recognised. I went through all the routine, eye tests, blood tests, chest tests, and all the paraphernalia of the medical board. It was a wonder that my blood test was not suspect, because of my fear that they would ask me if I had ever been examined before. However, I was finally sent for by the chairman of the medical board, who said... Well, Major Tatterton, I'm very pleased to tell you that we find you fit in all departments and that we must pass you fit for full flying duties as air crew and on operations. He did not know or hear the sigh of relief that I gave, for he was obviously not aware that I was really Flying Officer George Chatterton passed fit only for ground duties. I wonder where that record is. Perhaps it was destroyed. Now to fly again. I took the car up to Netheravon Airfield and made friends with the flight commander of the communication flight and we finally obtained permission to have a test. I shall remember that flight for two reasons. One, because I was in the air again, the thrill of it all and the knowledge that my hand was still in when the pilot handed over to me. The other was the inescapable signs of things military on the ground. For having served down there with soldiers, so much more familiar to me than before, such as formations of men marching, types of transport, artillery and such like, and of course, I realised how immensely important all this was. It took only ten minutes for me to go solo, and this, including five minutes duel in a hotspar glider, was the only duel practice I had in my whole period of my service in the glider pilot regiment. I mention this, for I feel it needs to be emphasised how wonderful the basic training of the RAF was, and is. Also, how once flying is instilled in his blood, it never leaves the pilot. This factor will play an immense part in the story to come. The next day I took the Tiger Moth and flew up to Derby, where I lost myself in the industrial haze and had to land in the field and ask my way. I had only a few pints of petrol left when I landed. At Derby I met John Rock for the first time, a serious and studious soldier, who made me wonder how long he and I would last together, as quite obviously his point of view was entirely different from mine. What amazed me was the fact that the command should have been given to a man who knew little or nothing about flying, and who was indeed a pupil now. This was just one of the amazing and extraordinary situations that had arisen from conception of the Glider Pilot Regiment. I could also see that the other members of the course had very strong views about how things should be run. They did not know that I viewed them with a professional airman's eye, and that I could already see the danger signs in their conversation, the confidence that is always apparent in flying pupils at the 20 to 30 hour stage. In fact, Rock was already talking to me in this way, and I could see there was going to be trouble ahead. As I flew back, I pondered over the problem, for I knew that he and this course of pilots would be returning in six months' time, when all the friction caused by differences of opinion would introduce problems. About this time, there arrived in the regiment two officers who were to have a great influence on the whole course of events. One day, I found a message on my table in the office informing me that Captain Alistair Cooper had been posted as my adjutant by the War Office and would arrive at Amesbury Station. I met the 4.30pm train from London, and while I waited for it to arrive, I paced the platform, wondering what he would be like, for the adjutant is of great importance in building up morale in a battalion. His influence could make or mar everything. The train drew in, and down the platform came a small, dapper figure. As he came nearer, his face became clearer and then familiar, and suddenly, I knew who he was. 
By some strange stroke of fate, he had been in my term at Pangbourne, and I remembered him well. He was one of those boys who had the misfortune not to grow quickly, and was therefore handicapped by his height and weight. For courage and guts, however, there was never his equal. "'Good afternoon, sir,' he said as he saluted smartly. "'I wondered if it might be you.' If ever a commanding officer had a perfect adjutant, I had him in Alistair Cooper. A regular officer of the Cheshire Regiment, he was all that an officer should be, for he supplied the inspiration that was needed. The story of Alistair Cooper, an epic of courage and determination, will be told later, but I can record here his unlimited patience, for he was to see officers less worthy than he promoted over his head without grumbling or complaining. He served on faithfully and loyally. The situation in these first days of the regiment was decidedly out of the ordinary. The headquarters of the 1st Airborne Division was developing alongside the headquarters of No. 38 Wing, REF, commanded by an enthusiast, Sir Nigel Norman, who held the rank of Wing Commander. And if the Airborne Division was ever to be lifted into the air, it would have to rely on No. 38 Wing, which was being developed for the purpose. At that time, however, it was equipped with a collection of antiquated aircraft, the chief of which was the twin-engined Whitley, now obsolescent so far as the RAF was concerned, but which was supposed to act as a parachute aircraft and glider tug. Also in the wing was a series of aircraft, Hawker Hind, a biplane and the Miles Master for towing the lighter gliders. There is little doubt that both Sir Nigel Norman and General Browning were encountering difficulties, for neither the 1st Airborne Division nor 38-wing RAF could have been very popular with the Air Ministry or the War Office. This was perhaps natural, for both ministries were weighed down with the formidable task of turning defeat into victory, and disasters were still hanging over them heavily every day. I came to know General Boy, as he was affectionately called, well, for he asked me to teach him to fly, and one certainly comes to know a person under those circumstances. In doing so, I soon got to know the true state of affairs. There was little doubt that his requests for the special equipment necessary for airborne divisions were not warmly received. The glider regiment introduced a new conception of war and with it new ideas and requirements. Transport had to be light instead of solid and heavy. Guns and equipment had to be viewed differently. Clothing, helmets and a thousand and one things had to be of a new design. Many difficulties accompanied their creation. The ministries were conservative of mind and it was obvious that General Boy was becoming frustrated by their attitude. Learning to fly, therefore, was a relief to him and for me it was a great experience Teaching a general of over 46 to fly was no easy matter, particularly this one, for he was a very determined person and quite inflammable. Nevertheless, he was amazingly good and quickly learned the technique of flying an aeroplane. He went solo in eight and a half hours, which is the average for a young man of 21, and very creditable to General Browning. I have never quite been sure whether it was a wise thing to do, for once one is off the ground and has a taste for flying, the flying bug, it can have serious consequences. About this time, the two services were very suspicious of each other and the RAF had a very definite attitude to the army, whom they called pongos or khaki jobs or brown jobs, and the army were all very well aware of their weaker position, particularly after the Battle of Britain. Between the wars, the RAF had been sat on and neglected, but when the expansion came, and after the success of the Battle of Britain, from the Chief of Air Staff downwards, there was a never-again attitude, particularly towards the army. Since my time, a completely new and much larger air force had come into being. In fact, a completely new outlook and language was apparent also. And words and names had appeared which were never used in my time. Spit and polish and bull were ridiculed in the air force, and this was all fully understandable. But it was quite extraordinary the gulf that it opened up everywhere. 
As for the army, they too had their attitudes, and in some way it shocked them to see the RAF walking around in the way they did. Also, they were being brought into contact with the new element, the air, not as airmen, but in an unnatural way. The Royal Air Force was also very aware of this, and dealing with the problems that arose was a matter of life and death to me in my command, for I had to watch the developments most carefully in the early training. As I've already explained, my view was that if the pilot of the glider had to get out and fight at the other end of the flight, he must have what amounted to a dual personality. First, the flexibility of the pilot for his long tow to the target. Secondly, the esprit and discipline and all that went with it, in order that he should stand up to the rigours of battle at the end of the journey. Already, because of the discipline and drill and barrack room pride, the RAF elementary flying schools were reacting, for the first stage of the glider pilot's flying training was a three-months course on light aircraft. The pupils were arriving with the attitude Bridley and Cowley had instilled in them, and the RAF saw it as a lot of nonsense. But, I argued, all they could see was the turning out of the pilot, not what he had to face on stepping from the glider. One of my answers to the RAF attitude was to dress myself up in top boots, Sam Brown belt, gloves and stick, and then to borrow a tiger moth and fly around the stations of the RAF where the glider pilots were training. Here, I would land in the most split-arse manner and show that I could do this despite the fact that I was dressed up with all the bull of a soldier. I feel sure that it was through the comradeship I managed to create and build up with the station commanders, most of them my contemporaries, plus my wings and the background which I represented, that confidence was regained and the glider pilot regiment was able to thrive. Thus the scene began to develop and slowly the regiment took shape and the pilots grew in number. As the first course began to finish its training on powered aircraft, so the Royal Air Force opened up their glider training units. Up to this time the gliders were of two kinds, the Hotspur, manufactured by General Aircraft, and the Horser, designed and manufactured by Airspeed Limited. Both types were made of wood and glue, and very little metal appeared anywhere. The Hotspur had beautiful lines and carried two pilots, one behind the other. Its total load was in the region of one tonne, or eight fully equipped soldiers. It was used entirely for training, and glider pilots transferred direct from the Tiger Moth to the Hotspur. At this time, the tug for the Hotspur was a vintage aircraft, the Hawker Hector. Later, the Miles Master replaced this old biplane and did some wonderful work in training many hundreds of glider pilots. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.